of the hashtag Ask Canadian Six podcast. Today, we will be joined by Kim Dillon and Deepa Matu, who work in the areas of supporting survivors of sexual violence. This subject may be triggering for some. Please stop listening if you need to. The Bunt is actively talking about this topic, and we wanted to bring Canadian subject experts to inform these conversations. My name is Harlene. I'm a Silly alumni from 2017, and I will be one of the hosts for this episode. My name is Simona Singh, and I'm also another Silly alumni, and I also graduated in 2017, and I'll be the other host for this episode. So what we're hoping with today's conversation is that our listener will gain a lot of valuable lessons from this conversation, and that and we can start off with introductions. Great. So Deepa, would you mind introducing yourself and what led you to get into this line of work? And then Kim can do the same. Uh, for sure. So my full name is Deepa Madhu, as you just um, introduced. I am a lawyer by profession and currently working as executive director of Barbara Schleifer Commemorative Clinic, which is a violence against women um, clinic here in uh, Toronto. Um, we work uh, with survivors of uh, gender-based violence of all types, and we have some special projects for sexual violence-related projects. Um, and the clinic provides uh, a few services, uh, which includes legal services, counseling, housing, and interpretation. We also have some special projects related to risk assessment and um, uh, criminalization of women. Uh, in terms of my own uh, personal uh, journey and how did I get into this line of work. I, um, I want to say that we all know that being a feminist or being part of a feminist movement is, uh, is something that transcends class, border, and other social and political division. So uh, for me, how I became a feminist is because I grew up around a lot of misogyny and male dominance. Uh, violence was uh, part of my life. Um, and uh, and I saw it from very close quarter, not only in, in my own uh, circles of care, but also uh, where I lived um, in North India. Uh, as a growing up young person, I saw a lot of violence around me. I chose to go to law school, which was a very male-dominated environment. And uh, it was my third year of practice where I realized that I want to utilize law as a vehicle of change. And I started exploring my own borders, my own boundaries. Um, I saw witnessing um, and I witnessed play out of patriarchy in the profession itself. Um, but I think what probably has been the most uh, influencing experience is that I saw feminism relevant to my life and I saw very, a lot of strong women in my life. And, um, and I think sometimes the role of women in our communities and in our lives is misunderstood because they are seen as caregivers. What is, I think, missed is that in their caregiving, they do a lot of uh, strong, strong role modeling of survivorship. And I think that that appreciation led me to where I am 
uh, one thing led to another. Uh, once I made that decision that I'm going to use law as a change, vehicle of change, I started working for not-for-profits, came to Canada, um, uh, I think many years later after doing my master's in England and so on and so forth, and just continued on that journey. Thank you. Hi everyone, my name is Kim Dillon. I am the founder of the Ixtahara Foundation, which is a grassroots initiative that I founded um, in late 2019. Uh, I've been working as a sexual assault and domestic violence counselor uh, since 2007. I started my work off in Calgary, Alberta at the Calgary Women's Shelter and with the YWCA as a shelter worker. Uh, what got me into this work. Um, I grew up um, around boys and then also grew up uh, witnessing my mom and um, my mom's side of the family sort of receiving a lot of backlash just um, because my mom doesn't have any brothers. And um, I think who inspired me to get into this work would be my Nana G, so my mom's dad. Um, he encouraged us all to pursue further education and to work hard and to strive for what we believe in. Um, and growing up, I was very reserved and quiet and very shy and didn't really speak up or voice my opinion. And as I've gotten older, I've learned to use that voice um, and to use that voice to help others. I'm currently um, completing my master's in social work and I'm working in the community as an activist and activist working um, to educate and bring awareness um, for anti-racism work and also am a huge advocate for the LGBTQ community. Um, and I wanted to educate uh, folks on sexual violence and domestic violence and the prevalence of it just within our Punjabi community, South Asian community and how um, young people uh, in my generation or even younger than myself, uh, can be a part of the change and um, be a part of the conversation to bring about the change. Because um, I remember growing up, I was always told, you know, Kim, so um, I wanted to get into this work to encourage others to use their voice. Oftentimes we're told, you know, we want to be the voice for the voiceless. And I used to believe that narrative as well. Um, but over time, I've learned that people do have a voice. We need to help them to use their voice to get the supports that they're needing. So yeah, that's why I got into this work. Um, thank you so much, Kim and Deepa for sharing your experiences. Um, uh, Kim, you actually gave me a great segue for my next question. You said uh, part of the work that you do is to give voice to the voiceless and you know, empowering the younger generation to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. So um, in our community, it's really, really difficult to have these uh, conversation about sexual assault and sexual abuse. So um, what do you think, what are some ways that uh, the younger generation or the current generation can start having these conversation and when and where is it appropriate to have them? Um, so before we get into having the conversation about sexual violence, we should identify what sexual violence or sexual assault is. Um, so if it's okay with you guys, I'm just going to give you a quick definition. 
Um, so when you're looking at sexual assault, sexual assault is an act in which a person intentionally sexually touches another person without that person's consent or co coerces a person physically forces a person to engage in a sexual act against their will. Um, and so when we're talking about sexual violence and having the conversation, um, like all fundamental lessons in life, uh, the conversation needs to start at home. And when we are talking to parents, they're like, well, we don't want to have that conversation about sex at home, like right away. Um, there's steps to that, right? Like you have baby steps. And one of the most important things that we need to start off with is consent and teaching your children um, boundaries and having ownership over their own bodies and autonomy. And so striking up the conversation of, you know, if in our Punjabi community, um, when aunties and uncles come over, if an uncle or auntie wants to give a child a hug and the child doesn't want to, parents should encourage that child to be able to say no and um, enforce that child to say, you know what, it's okay if you say no, because it's your body. If you don't feel comfortable with somebody giving you a hug, that's completely okay. And so we need to start off with that conversation first. Um, and then as children are gradually getting into schools or meeting other people, recognizing that sexual assault um, in over 87% of sexual assault cases in Canada, the perpetrator knows the victim. Um, so a lot of times what I'll hear, especially from um, people that I work with, is, you know, we don't know them or, you know, but then cases and statistics show the complete opposite, right? Um, whereas it's a relative or a family friend who's actually um, engaged in the sexual act and um, the incident. And so teaching your kids to have boundaries for themselves, what consent looks like, um, and using language that your kids will understand. And, you know, there's books that are out there for kids when we're talking about biology and talking about body parts and using the actual words to describe your certain body parts. Because if the child knows, then you know what, this is my breast. And if someone touches me inappropriately here, that's, that's not okay. Then the child is able to recognize that, that that's not appropriate behavior. Um, and so the conversation needs to start at home to begin with. And um, it needs to start with consent. And I'm sure uh, Deepa can um, add more if anybody else wants to. Sorry, I don't know if you want to cut that part out. I really liked where, where Kim started uh, us off with the definition of, of the, the sexual assault, because I think one of the one of the challenges that we have in our community um, while talking about um, sexual assault, sexual touching, uh, uh, we we tend to um, we tend to believe that um, not all unwanted sexual activity is uh, assault, and that that's where the biggest problem is. Uh, sexual assault is all unwanted sexual activity. It, it can include grabbing, to kissing, to fondling, fondling, to rape, to Hugging, as as Kim was telling us, um, if I could 
give you the legal definition, which is given in the criminal code, um, if there is something interesting about that definition itself. It says there needs to be a voluntary agreement to engage in sexual, sexual activity in question. There should be affirmation communicated um, for their consent. It could be through words or conduct. Silence or passivity does not equal consent. The, the legal construct is very clear. Now, how do we have conversation about it and where do we go wrong? Uh, those are interesting, um, interesting things to think about and talk about. And I'm not using interesting as a placeholder, but I'm using interesting as in what happens in our houses and what, hap what has happened for generations, right? So my mom or my mom's mom or, or a lot of young girls in the community are given this burden of toxic understanding of sexual assault. And when I say toxic understanding of sexual assault, it comes, uh, it comes to us based on a belief system which says that you are supposed to take proper steps to check yourself. You have this burden of keeping yourself safe. Uh, so it's not that we were not told what is wrong or right. We were told that in a very toxic way. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it is the experience of lots of our young, uh, young girls. So I, 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 and I'm not, I'm not disagreeing, but I'm, I'm giving you a different way or different point of entry into the conversation. It's not, it's not that South Asian Punjabi households or Kashmiri households. Uh, I, I'm a, I have a hybrid family. I'm a Kashmiri myself, and my husband is a, is a Sikh. So my child uh, calls herself, I am Kashmiri Sikh, which is absolutely beautiful. But it, I, what I experience is that what, can, what I can keep and what the conversations I can, I can have in my four walls is something that she verifies from the outside world. And what happens in the outside world when she interacts with the outside world, she brings it home and verifies it with me. So yeah. she, she's living a life. And she's living a life where she's verifying these facts and she's finding these contradictions. So what happens in a lot of our households is that we talk about things in a toxic way, in a way that somehow makes, um, makes young women believe that sexual activity is wrong, sexual activity is toxic, sexual activity is destructive, and there is no conversation about the consent, there is no conversation about autonomy, there is no conversation about your sexual agency. And that's where I feel personally, the, the change of the discourse or change of the conversation needs to happen there. If we start talking about sexuality, sex, um, and, and we change the framework, I think, I mean, I'm very proud of being uh, a South Asian. I'm very proud of being a Kashmiri and, and, and married in a Sikh family. I'm very, very proud of that. So there is a, like a, a sense of anakami when it comes to that, right? But we are very good. We are very good. We are very broad-minded as well. I think the problem is that we use a wrong toxic framework to talk about it. And if we can take care of that, I think we are, we, are, we are very responsible people and we try to keep each other safe, but in a toxic way. That's where my challenge is and I feel that's where the change needs to happen and that's, that would be my point of entry and say, can we fix this? 
And I definitely love the example Kim gave about the books. My child is now a teenager. She's 15 years old. But I can tell you that's where I started. And mm-hmm. to share the joke with you um, and your audience, she told me later on, I feel you were a little advanced in your teaching with me. Maybe I was. But, but <laughs> those books are the exact ones that I use um, to talk about uh, about sex, sexuality, your body, your body image, all of those those important issues. And then one of the things just to back to add to that is the conversation needs to happen with both boys and girls. And so when we're having conversations with our girls, it's usually, you know, you shouldn't wear this or you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't act a certain way because an uncle will look at you or, you know, um, why are you wearing this? Your uncle or your brother's friend is going to come up, going to come over. Um, those are conversations that put the blame and the owner own, put the blame on the girl and put the ownership of if the uncle or the friend was to look at the girl in an inappropriate way that it would be her fault. Um, We need to have conversations with our boys as well and to demonstrate having a healthy relationship. Um, How many of us have seen our parents, you know, hold hands or um, say I love you or even give a peck on the cheek to one another. Very seldom. I've witnessed it now as I've gone older to be my parents being more affectionate in front of one another, but it doesn't happen very often, right? And so when we're not used to witnessing that at home in our home environment, um, we see that outside and then we don't know how to process that. Um, And so teaching and demonstrating what a healthy relationship looks like. And so a lot of um, parents, what I tell them to do is teach your kids how to have a healthy relationship because it's proven that when you're older and when you're looking for relationships, you tend to navigate towards um, relationships that you're used to witnessing at home. And so talking to our boys as well about um, how to treat themselves and how to treat women in a respectful manner outside the home, right? A lot of times what happens is we'll see men who are respecting their moms and who are respecting their sisters, but when they're out in the community and they're dating women, it's so toxic and they're so abusive to these women, Um, whether it's domestic violence or sexual abuse, respect isn't only earned sorry, respect isn't only reserved for your mom or your sister or your daughter. It should be given to women who you engage with on the daily basis and vice versa for men and women. So the conversation needs to start at home. It needs to happen with your boys and your girls, and you need to demonstrate the healthy relationships because that's what kids um, witness at home and that's what they look up to. I, I, I really like what you're saying, Kim, and, and um, I just want to very quickly uh, make us all think about as we go further in this conversation that the notion of izzat, the notion of honor, the notion of respect, it's not that we don't know what is the right thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we have all those constructs. So it is considered um, 
a very shameful act to do. I mean, I, I sometimes am amused at watching news from India at times where they would, they would try to not use the word rape. They would find different ways to describe rape uh, and not say the, the word rape itself. And I, and I, I get amazed at that. Um, mm. so, so, so if we know what is right and wrong, then how come we are not focusing on the right from the notion of the right um, itself, instead of trying to mask it, instead of trying to, um, you know, um, create these burdens, not only on our boys, but girls, um, which then, uh, you know, basically they, they, their whole life is based on these truth uh, versus false constructs. And, and I, find, uh, I find a lot of health relationships are spoiled, but I also feel like a lot of contradiction is in front of them because what they are hearing from their own community and the discourse they're hearing from their own community is not matching the discourse of what law is intending or what, um, what is being said in the mainstream or what the, the scholarly articles are saying. So I think that, that contradiction is, is huge and very confusing for youngsters at times. Yeah, no, I, um, I'm going to jump in here, but I, uh, I agree with everything that both of you said, and I think that that gives us a lot of different things to think about and a lot of different avenues that this conversation can take going forward, but I'm going to jump back um, to something that both of you mentioned, and it's about how, like, women carry this burden of staying safe, and we mm -hmm. tell our, you know, we tell the women and the girls to dress a certain way and act a certain way because their job is to avoid being in situations where they could possibly be sexually assaulted or anything of that sort. So um, I think that the, that kind of brings in the whole notion of victim blaming. Mm -hmm. um, do you guys want to both go into that and just talk about what are some examples of victim blaming in our community and how we can unlearn these patterns of t thinking and also just how personally and as a community, how can we recognize when we think a certain way and then realize that that's incorrect, and then relearn those thought processes. Processes. I, I can quickly start because, um, as I told all of you about my location of work and, and stuff like that. So, from that perspective, I want to say that victim blaming is definitely, since we are talking among ourselves, we, we are talking about our community and our focus is that. So, victim blaming is slightly beyond that, right? And I, I hope as we as we go further talking uh, today, we will be talking about some of the systemic issues later in the conversation. But victim blaming is, it comes from a direct construct of a model behavior of a person, right? So there is a model behavior which is expected of people. And the minute there is a crime, or at the minute there is an experience of violence, there is a notion that enters into people's mind because of how people are conditioned in our society, um, in our community, and broadly speaking, beyond our community as well, where there, is, there are lots of things which are said, right? Um, she, uh, she might be wearing the wrong clothing. She might not be actually following the, the rituals that she was expected to follow. She must be drunk. She must be wearing smaller skirts. Um, and so on and so forth. So I'll give you an example from our mainstream um, uh, situation first, and then I can, I, I can maybe tell you a few things that I have seen from my, our own, own community as well. 
So what I what I have seen in the mainstream was um, uh, there was an inquiry against a federal court judge, Justice Robin Camp, a few years ago, and then he resigned and he was found to be uh, at fault. And in one of these, and it was an Alberta case, so in one of the cases, he went on to say to the survivor of sexual assault, uh, something to the, in the line of that you should have kept your, kept your knees closed. So that's an example of a mainstream judge in a case, victim blaming. So that's not necessarily coming from, you know, an ethno-specific background. It's coming from a mainstream. And, I, and we talk about it a lot, that a model victim in the legal system is sometimes a white woman who is um, young uh, and, and coming, come, comes from a, a slightly middle class or upper middle class background, educated. That's a model victim uh, in, the, in, the, in the legal system. Coming to our, our community, and coming to our community's uh, discourses that I hear commonly is um, she was she was too out and about she was not necessarily uh, and I think the literal translation would be that she was not listening to her parents um, uh, that she she was too ambitious is another one uh, so so yeah those are the those are the most common ones that I can think of at the moment. But there are many more, right? From how you wear clothes to how you conduct yourself and what relationships you had and 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 whatnot. Why it happens? Uh, two reasons from my analysis of doing this work. One is that we are all conditioned, we all are biased, we have learned this, um, these informations over the years. And when an a situation, a traumatized situation. Um, comes in front of us and we hear about your trauma, uh, we all want to know why it happened because it helps our brains to calm down because our brains have now registered it as this happened and it must have happened because of this because it's not going to happen to me or my loved one, right? So we try to keep ourselves, this is our brain's strategy to keep ourselves safe. So uh, therefore all those biases and all those pre-existing notions in our brain get activated and those are easier answers. So that's from the, the experience of uh, understanding trauma response in the society that I'm telling you why it happens. Uh, if I tell you why it happens more in the construct of patriarchy and misogyny, I think because misogyny and patriarchy actually holds the, the fabric of our society together. Uh, male dominance has been an acceptable behavior and has created a structure in our, our social life, uh, which keeps the, the, the decorum. Uh, and, uh, and if we don't do victim blaming, blaming that decorum and that, uh, I don't know how to say it, but that it will, it will be, I can't pronounce the word, but that balance will not be there. And therefore, we all, even women, I'm not saying that only men do victim blaming, even women do victim blaming because of that. Because we are trying to maintain the patriarchy, male dominance balance that is woven so deeply in our, um, in our, our society and in our community. Um, okay, and then so from my perspective on victim blaming, um, Deepa made a point um, in terms of the judge who had spoken up and the model victim. And it's absolutely right. The model victim is a Caucasian white female 
um, who was at the wrong place at the wrong time and she'll most likely receive more supports than a black indigenous person of color. And so when we're looking at stats of sexual assault cases, it's one in every three women will be a victim of sexual violence um, before the age of 25. Now, if we're looking at people of color, black women are six times more likely to be victims of sexual violence, but they're also most likely to not receive the services and supports that they're needing because of um, the systemic issues that um, are in place in organizations and um, policing and healthcare that create limitations for them to receive these supports. So when we're look actually looking at the South Asian community for the purposes of this podcast, um, Deepa mentioned something in terms of, you know, women dressing a certain way and that blame is put on them. Uh, from my experience of working and providing supports to women, um, and the purpose, and I, I know that viewers listening in will say, you know, men are also victims of sexual violence, and they are, so I apologize if I'm saying she, it's, I work predominantly with women, I do work with men as well, um, but again, just back to what I was saying, is I, when I was working in supporting women through the uh, court systems, or even at the hospital, I remember um, I was accompanying a South Asian woman who had been sexually assaulted. Um, an officer came to take a statement from her, and before he was going to take the statement from her, I was talk, speaking to her, and then I went to go speak to him, and his words to me were, well, did you see what she was wearing? She was obviously going there to have sex. Mm that in itself creates a barrier and who would want to give a police officer a statement when he has that pre-notioned belief on her he's putting the blame on her saying you know what she was dressed that way so she must have gone to have sex so how could he have possibly sexually assaulted her and so when we're also looking at the cases of sexual assault cases in canada there's thousands of cases that go unfounded and what unfounded means is that it'll be reported to the police and that's where it stops um oftentimes the police will take a statement or sometimes they don't take a statement because the victim doesn't feel comfortable speaking to the officer um and so imagine a person who's been brutally sexually assaulted is now feeling like they're the person who is being interrogated and who is being treated as if they've done something wrong. Um, and so when we're looking at sexual assault and victim blaming, a lot of times we put that blame on the person who's been sexually assaulted. We ask questions like, what happened? Where did it happen? What were you doing? That's the big question that I always hear is, what was she doing or what was he doing when this happened? Um, and then just the belief of, you know, oh, it can't happen in our community or she's lying. Um, I had somebody actually send me inappropriate messages over social media um, in the summertime. 
And I had reached out to mutual contacts saying, hey, do you know this person? He's sending me inappropriate messages. Like, does he realize what I do for work? And the person I had contacted immediately said to me, oh, no, he's a family man. He would never do something like that. And I'm looking at these messages on the screen thinking, you know what, like, I am somebody who is able to speak up and defend myself. And then you have a say you have a young vulnerable girl who's a teenager and is opening up her social media account and getting these explicit messages and she goes and tells somebody that person is going to say to her well what were you doing and so we need to stop with that narrative or stop with that question of what you were doing when someone tells you that they've been sexually assaulted i want people to understand if there's one takeaway from this conversation i want you to take this away is if someone tells you that that they've been sexually assaulted know that it took them a lot of courage to even say those words out loud that they've been sexually assaulted because for them to even believe that they've been sexually assaulted they sometimes are in disbelief and so if someone comes and confides in you that they've experienced a sexual assault whether it was years ago or whether it was recently believe them and don't ask questions of what were you doing what were you wearing or what did you say because then that will create a wall and that person will not want to tell you and then that person will automatically then feel like that they're at fault and that they must have done something to deserve this so that's the one thing that i always say to people is it takes a lot of courage for someone to come and say to you or even say to themselves, I've been sexually assaulted, right? Like they're having one, when you start asking those questions and when you start putting the onus on the victim, it starts to make them feel like they deserved what happened to them. And regardless of what they were doing, what she was wearing, where she was, it's not a victim's fault whatsoever. Um, and we need to stop those questions um yeah so it's one of the takeaways and then one of the other things i wanted to mention is with victim blaming and this isn't again just within the south asian community it happens across all communities is you know we'll say um if there's a group that's gone out and they've all been drinking and if a guy's been drinking we'll automatically say oh you know he didn't know what he was doing because he was drinking and say a girl was to get sexually assaulted and she had been drinking, well, she was drinking, she should have known better. And there's been cases in the courts that uh, that come from these examples. There's a case um, in the States, uh, a Caucasian male student um, who had sexually assaulted another student, I can't remember his name, but he had sexually assaulted another student um, on campus and he was sentenced to, I believe, nine months um, for sexually assaulting this unconscious girl. And he only served about three. And basically the judge said to him, we don't wanna ruin his life. Um, he's a young man, he has so much ahead of him. Well, look at the victim. She was sexually assaulted. You think that just because she's gone through the courts or she's receiving counseling that this won't be um, something that she carries with her for life. And that's the other thing, right, is people often think that someone's gone to counseling, that, you know, they've gone to counseling, they've healed. Healing isn't something that just stops once you've stopped going to counseling. It's an ongoing journey. And so 
the language we use around individuals who have experienced sexual violence is extremely important because the language that we use can sometimes be triggering um, for someone who has experienced a sexual assault. And when they've experienced a sexual assault like that, they will can tend to have flashbacks. Um, and then that, again, goes into the whole narrative of, well, why didn't a person, why didn't she tell us um, that she was sexually assaulted when it happened? Why is she telling us years later? There's several reasons and we can go and have a lengthy conversation as to why a person doesn't come forward and tell somebody that they've been sexually assaulted. And oftentimes what happens is if a child has experienced a sexual assault and they don't come and confide in you um, right away and they, you know, years later they say to you, I, you know, this is what, I think this is what happened to me when I was younger. It's they're having flashbacks of the incident and something in them is saying, you know what, this needs to come out and you need to tell somebody. And so when they're coming to tell you it, they've questioned it themselves many times. Should I tell this person or should I just leave it? Um, and so we need to believe victims when they come and tell us that they've experienced a sexual assault or a sexual inappropriate um, behavior from someone else. Um, for Kim and, uh, and Deepa, um, one of the things that stuck out to me when you were having that conversation is, uh, uh, Deepa, you specifically brought out an example, and uh, you kind of enhanced on that, Kim, about um, a Caucasian white woman model victim, mm -hmm. and that really stuck out to me, just, uh, you know, the model victim is educated, comes from a middle class, is mostly supported by the community, and will get that support even in the legal system for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, and then you kind of touched on uh, systemic inequalities and systemic barriers that come in uh, for somebody that, that has a, a, a different color of skin, who is perhaps brown, perhaps has darkened skin color. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to, um, to touch base on is, uh, uh, you know, exactly Victims don't feel safe even going to the police out of the fear that they will get judged. Uh, similarly to the example, Kim, that you brought up of the police, you know, uh, a police force being kind of judgmental towards the victim. Mm -hmm. So in this case, that obviously stops the victim from wanting to, to, to reach for help. But now I kind of wanted to, to, to look at that from, um, from a systemic point of view. So uh, let's start off with like, what are microaggressions? Um, what are microaggressions that you have heard in the context of sexual violence? Um, you've shared some of with us already, um, but how should we uh, react to, the, to these comments and try to combat the systemic inequalities that we often find ourselves uh, pushing against? Um, see, from the systemic point of view, it, it's an, this is, every time I, I am sitting in a room like like this where I have my you know fellow sisters uh, uh, chilling in the brown skin at this point um, and, and talking to to people. It's interesting because what we are facing within our community is 
is definitely violence and definitely we are part of a bigger system and struggle. But um, what happens when we talk about violence in our communities, there is a tendency for the mainstream to homogenize. And there is a tendency for mainstream to look at um, it as, oh, this must be a problem in your community, right? Mm -hmm. Because you are acting as a spokesperson in the moment about what is happening in my community. So some of the examples, for example, that we are, we are sharing right now, can be looked at, oh, this is so, you know, we, we suddenly become this, uh, there's a sense of, oh, this is your problem, and my backyard is so cleaner than yours. When, when, when the reality is, like if you look at the Canadian's past, um, young Canadians are more likely to experience sexual assault um, as compared to the older uh, Canadians. And uh, Canadians between the age of 15 to 24 are 18 times higher than that of Canadians within the age group of 55 and older. So that's a Canadian stat. That's not a stat from a South Asian community. Um, the Black, Indigenous, people of color experience uh, three times more chances of experiencing sexual assault as compared to others is another stat. Um, girls are four times more likely uh, than boys to be sexually abused within their family context is another stat. So these are all Canadian stats. They're not from a specific community. So the, the construct of what happens in an intersectional situation for a woman who is from, say, the IBOC or Punjabi community is there are other other things that are happening in her life, right? Like, so it's not, not necessarily just um, just that she's a person of color. So the notion of intersectionality and the construct given to us by Professor Crenshaw, who is a black feminist lawyer from US, um, gives a very interesting example. It talks about that when an accident happens um, on a roundabout where, where the cars are coming from all different sides, it's, it's hard to know what which driver was at the mistake first, right? So think about this. If uh, a woman is disabled, if a woman is a single woman, if she's unemployed, she's low income, she doesn't have housing, all of those are heightened risk of sexual assault um, in a systemic way. Um, and is, is it, does it happen to South Asian women and what kind of microaggression that they experience from, uh, from the mainstream are uh, some examples that I gave, gave you. It must be happening in your community. Oh, there is this lack of support in your community. Uh, so when she's interacting with the mainstream, they are looking at her and questioning. Uh, they're questioning her credibility sometimes because she doesn't speak the language. Um, a very simple example is that rather than explaining that what happened to her was assault or rape, she would use, she would use minimizing words at times, and, and the system looks at her and says, oh, oh, so then this was nothing, because you're saying it was a bad deed, because she was a burakam, right? So, so I see that happen quite a bit. I see um, uh, trivializing of violence against uh, South Asian women because they don't make good witnesses or they will take their statement back uh, under the pressure of their community. So I see a lot of those kind of, uh, those kind of situations play out. Um, within the community, the microaggressions are also huge. There is sometimes um, experience of people not including you in your, their, their conversations or just treating you as if there is something wrong with you now that you have gone through this experience and you've talked about it, or they try to shut you down or silence you. 
Uh, so we, I see that too. But while I'm talking about these two examples from both sides, I want us to be careful about the fact that when we choose to talk about our experiences, we are not expecting the system to use the same example as a tool of further aggression against us, because we already experience that. We are already in a fight against uh, anti-racism in the Canadian context. So these two things need to be looked at differently, and our experiences should be considered as part of the Canadian social fabric at this point, and they shouldn't be looked at as something for which happens in your community. So, mm -hmm. and when we talk about it, we shouldn't be experiencing, which I have in my initial years of my work in Canada. I can tell you, I used to work for South Asian Legal Clinic of Ontario, and I used to find a lot of uncles and aunties telling me, "Why are you, you know, washing dirty linens in the public of the community?" And I, and my, my politics right from the beginning was that there is racism happening against you which you don't want to see because you don't want to then talk about what is the, what is wrong within our community as well so um, so I think we have come a long way in last 15 20 years um, but yeah this is where I leave I am sure uh, Kim has some additional wisdom to add on this um, yeah so for me I being um, a South Asian Punjabi female who's also born and raised in Canada, I understand both cultures have been here my entire life. Um, and then just also working within the criminal justice system um, and working in close partnership with law enforcement. Um, I have seen when victims of sexual violence come in and how they are treated by law enforcement. Um, and you know, and it's not just law enforcement, it happens in education, it happens in healthcare. There's so many barriers that are in their way to access supports and services. Um, and I know Deepa mentioned a stat um, that um, Black, Indigenous, women of color are three times higher. That number's actually recently increased um, from a report, I believe it was from 2019, that they're actually six times higher. And the reason is because there's a lack of services, right? And so oftentimes, um, just in my personal work, when I am working on a caseload, if there's a Punjabi um, client or a woman who is of South Asian background, um, that case often falls on me. And the reason being is because I'm able to understand um, the intergenerational trauma that is faced within our own community, and I'm able to better support these women. Um, whereas even working in the field of social work, there's um, concerns and there's systemic issues. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a close follower of the American politics. And when we look at um, what's happening in the states and a law was passed yesterday in Texas where a social worker can actually decline services um, to a person based on their ethnicity or race or sexual orientation um, and that goes against what social work stands for because I got into this field to support people um, who need support and who are most vulnerable and so when you have um, a community who, yes, you know, I'll, I'll give an example, like my parents came to Canada 40 years ago, 
Um, they both work in labor work. My dad worked for CNRL for 40 years. Um, and, you know, coming and getting used to the Canadian way of living, but also holding on to their own cultural beliefs and trying to, you know, have their kids engaged in both the Punjabi culture and also the Western culture. Um, it's difficult. And so they faced a lot of um, systemic issues and barriers themselves. And so it's, you're unlearning the old ways and relearning. And so people can always relearn it, you know. And so when we're talking about sexual violence, we need to talk about it in a way that, you know, yes, it happens in all communities and it happens in the Punjabi community as well or in the South Asian community and how do we recognize it as a whole and oftentimes even just with my work I've heard many times from fellow um, social workers you know oh domestic violence oh that happens in your community you know your Punjabi men beat their wives all the time. I'm like, no, that doesn't, it's not a thing. It's, it's not a cultural thing. It happens across all communities. And so how do we navigate that? And how do we support victims of sexual violence or domestic violence? And we need to start at home. And so we need to stop the language. And sometimes we don't recognize microaggressions that are happening on the daily basis. And microaggressions are words or phrases that we say in our every day-to-day lives that may be harmful to um, a certain ethnicity or um, a certain gender. So in terms of sexual violence, when we look at microaggressions, some of the examples would be boys will be boys. Um, Another one will be act like a lady or, um, you know, when a man is being emotional and he's expressing his feelings, he's often told man up Um, or young girls are told, you know, you need to look like a princess or even the notion um, there's a hashtag that's been recently going on. Uh, going around and it's um, hashtag she boss and I'm sure everyone's heard of it and used it but that is a form of a microaggression in my opinion because why do we need to add she boss in front of it just you know her gender shouldn't identify her as a boss she got to where she is because of her hard work and determination in the field that she's practicing and so the conversations need to start at home and they need to take place outside of our home as well in terms of um, schools, healthcare facilities. Um, And so my work that I'm doing, I also work um, with police officers and educating on um, the different languages and how to better support um, individuals within the South Asian community so we can understand you know, the trauma that they've faced, maybe not just in Canada, but growing up, um, my parents were raised very differently than I am. And so sometimes I have to even step back and say, you know what, okay, this is how I view the world. But perhaps mom or dad, you know, they were raised differently. And this is how they view the world. And they're just, they're evolving and learning right alongside myself. And so when we're talking about sexual violence, we need to 
have those difficult conversations. I remember I would talk about sexual violence and sexual assault cases with my dad. And when I went back home to visit, we were talking about sex trafficking. And my mom walked in and she's like, And my dad was so intrigued and wanted to learn. And, you know, he went back and had that conversation with his best friend on what sex um, human trafficking looks like and how they can help um, young girls or young boys and to prevent it from happening within our own community. And so to be able to have be comfortable to have those conversations and if you need supports or if you need to speak to somebody about how to start those conversations there's you know individuals who work in the community like Deepa or myself or um, others or even there's books there's podcasts that you can listen to on how to better support um, individuals who are victims of sexual violence. Um, that was great thank you so much Deepa and Kim for discussing those like the, these topics because I think it's like it's very difficult to even identify microaggressions like one thing that um, Kim had mentioned like a, a little I think the last question um, just about how when um, someone comes forward and says that they have been the victim of sexual assault we always ask like what are what was she doing or you know like maybe she's lying but the moment if it's like the guy is the perpetrator then we ask then we say oh no he's a family man so that's yeah. not that's not something that you know he could possibly even do and um so when I was an undergrad I actually did research um just about like women in leadership and one okay. thing that like really stuck out to me and like I've carried it with me since is that um there's research studies that show that we like just all like just across the board regardless of race and like where you're like where you you're from and everything um we see men as trustworthy and we don't see women as trustworthy so mm -hmm. like that's something that like every single time like I have a certain thought I always pause to like think about that and I'll be like am I doubting what this person is saying to me just because she is a woman or am I trusting this because it's you know this person is a man so that that's something that like really stuck with me and I think it kind of ties into this conversation and it's just interesting to see that that's something that has been across the board um in like in different conversations like even in like you know women that are trying to work their way up mm -hmm. at work versus like even in the sexual assault context um just that trust that we have in men yeah um but I kind of wanted to jump into this question because I personally just think it's very important to touch on and I think both of you can speak to it um, and it's this whole idea of not believing survivors until there's criminal charges. And um, we should, and you know, like this whole notion of we should treat the perpetrator as innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. What do you, like, what are your thoughts about this? And what do you think that, what are the issues surrounding this whole notion for survivors and as, and to the community as a whole? So the belief that, you know, we should, um, and I know Deepa can speak in terms of like the, the criminal, the law piece of it, um, but just as an advocate for victims of sexual violence, um, within Canada, I believe it's less than 2% of sexual assault cases that are reported to the police are actually false. Um, and so that's a very low number. Um, and the other thing is um, when we continue to say you know that must must not have happened 
or especially when we're talking about historical sexual assaults, um, oftentimes you'll hear, well, why didn't she tell or why didn't they come out um, and tell somebody when it happened? Um, you know, that piece needs to stop um, because once we, once we start throwing out, um, you know, it's not true or don't believe her, then that, um, and that forces victims or survivors of sexual violence not to come forward. Then that, they start to feel embarrassed, they start to feel shamed, um, and they don't want to tell their story. So then that, again, goes back to the whole, um, what I was saying earlier was that, you know, when somebody tells you that they've been a victim of sexual violence, they've processed coming to you to tell you several times. They've probably attempted to tell you several times before they actually were able to tell you. Um, and then just within the courts, like as somebody who's sat in the courts, um, our criminal justice system, I think um, with you, in order to get a conviction, conviction, and I believe Deepa can speak on this more, but in order to get a conviction, it has to, there has to be without reasonable doubt that the um, incident occurred. And oftentimes what happens specifically with South Asian um, Punjabi cases or just in general, um, the victim, when she's put on the stand to speak about the incident that's happened, language becomes um, a barrier, especially if she does not speak English. Um, and you'll have a translator there. Uh, and I've sat in the courtroom and I've witnessed, um, you know, a victim giving her statement um, and then the translator translating it. And I've had to like tap the Crown Prosecutor and say, you know, that wasn't translated correctly because the language could be translated the sentence when you speak from English to Punjabi when we're translating it it could change the whole context of what we're trying to say and so oftentimes again I think Deepa pointed this out is that um, they're not seen as credible um, witnesses when they're giving a testimony in court so a lot of times there's that could be the reason why there's no criminal charges. But I say this to my clients all the time that even if there's not a criminal charge or even if you don't tell the police, that doesn't mean that the incident didn't happen. You ne we need to start believing people when they tell us that they've been victims of sexual violence. And one of the other things that we need to actually stop doing is that if someone tells you that they've been sexually assaulted, it, and especially if it's somebody that's an adult, if it's a child, it's different than you need to um, report it. But if an adult comes to you and they tell you that they've been sexually assaulted and they don't want to report it to the police, don't force them to. Um, reporting to the police and going through the court process is traumatizing. They've endured a horrific sexual assault. And then you're telling them that the only way you're going to believe them or the only way that um, you know, the assault happened or there's belief in their story is if there's a conviction or um, a court proceeding. If you look at, um, there's three sisters who shared their story and they were sexually assaulted as children, um, the Puni sisters. They actually went through the whole court process and they have a documentary out called Because We Are Girls. And 
the accused was convicted on um, a number of charges and there was a number that he wasn't um, convicted on, but the charges that he were, was a, a convicted on, he appealed the decision. And then um, I believe those charges were stayed. And so what happened was the Booney sisters had to, um, you know, hold, held out a petition to get people to, you know, speak to the Crown prosecutors to appeal the accused decision. So not only were they sexually assaulted as children, now as adults, they reported it, they've gone through the court process, the guy was convicted, and then he appealed the court's decision based on saying he didn't understand English or some sort of story. And now then they had to file another appeal to the court and that appeal has been approved. And so now they're most likely going to have to go through the whole court process again. So when we're saying to victims that, you know, you need to tell the police or you need to tell the courts, it can be re-traumatizing. And a lot of people don't want to go through that trauma again. That's just my take. Um, it's, it's an interest. In, sorry, I always use interesting. A, a colleague of mine says that I use it as a placeholder. So I'll, I'll start again. Um, uh, it's an important question, right? Because uh, we, we know that we all uh, witnessed uh, in 2017 when Me Too, a hashtag kind of uh, resurfaced itself. So in 2006, Toronto Burke had coined the phrase Me Too as a means to get survivors of sexual assault, particularly women of girls of color and black women. Uh, know that they are not alone, and that uh, there are lots of us, and um, and there is a there is hope and support and inspiration in um, telling each other and supporting each other, um, and saying that it has happened to me too. And the whole notion behind that hashtag movement that we all saw, you know, unfold in, in front of us, was exactly coming out of that the challenge of the legal system. And the challenge of the legal system is that majority of the sexual assault cases do not uh, progress through the legal system of any kind, let alone criminal justice system, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and, and the reason for that are many. There are systemic barriers, there are um, the barriers that just um, can kind of explain that it's very, it's very traumatizing. Um, you are um, you are completely frozen at times after the experience, and you don't want to do anything about it. You just want to forget it as a bad dream, and and you have a life, right? So you have experienced a trauma um, where, in the moment, your your complete autonomy and agency is uh, is stolen away from you, and and you're stripped of, of your agency and. And then the expectation is now you will talk to these 1,500 people in your life, right from your doctor to a social worker to a lawyer to a police officer. And, and then not only that, you will file a case. And after that, a police officer uh, or the Crown will, um, will go ahead with the case if, they, if it goes forward. Like that's another big piece, which I think some people uh, don't uh, seem to know or, uh, you know, because the process is so layered and complex and convoluted that, um, that sometimes um, you don't know, you don't understand that just going to the cops, A, you many won't go to the cops, and B, even if you go to the cops, it doesn't necessarily mean that the case will proceed. And, and C, you have judges in the system, as we discussed earlier, 
who don't want to spoil a boy's career um, and all of those things. But when we are examining this issue and we, are, we know the challenge of the system and we know um, a lot of people will not proceed, it's automatic, it's a, it's a game of elimination basically, right? In, in, the, in, in, the, in the stats world. Uh, so over 50% will not go to the cops ever. They will not, they will maybe speak to their close uh, friends or family uh, and, and, they, and then, and then the, out of those 50%, only a very small percentage will uh, go further in front of a court. Out of that very small percentage uh, will actually get convicted. And, and all of this has a perpetual uh, cycle of, of uh, systemic challenge for survivors, right? Because there is a big uh, percentage of people who are silenced who are not talking about it for the right reason, for needed, you know, suited to themselves. Um, and I, I work from a trauma-informed client-centric perspective, so I, in my practice, or my clinic in, my, in, in the practice, would never tell a survivor, you should, you should um, talk to the cops, because we will, we will work from the framework that here are, here are all the options you have, and if you feel ready, you should talk to the cops, because we know that there are challenges that are going to come her way. Now, that's one aspect of, the, of this conversation, and we all kind of understand it, and we know that, uh, that there are other challenges as well, and which we have briefly touched upon, but I think maybe it is important to kind of give us ourselves a reminder. So in most of the sexual assault cases, the perpetrator of this assault is usually someone you know from the close quarters. So they could be your acquaintances, your family members. Um, it, in very limited cases, they are actually complete strangers to you. So they might be working at, with you, they might be your family members, uh, from your, someone from your social gathering that you interact with. Uh, so that's something that is really important to know. Um, because that is a barrier that we don't talk about enough. Um, sometimes that um, for a survivor and for a survivor from a community which is very connected and close-knit, it is an additional, I don't know, 100 ton burden on her shoulders that now not only she has to go to the cops with all of those other things that we have talked about, in addition to that, she has to now go and talk about someone who is related to her, as it was in the case of the Punya sisters. So I don't know how many of you have seen the documentary. Um, it's a really well-made documentary. I think everyone should watch it. I was fortunate to be at one of the release in Toronto and uh, be on the panel uh, with, with um, two, of the, two of the sisters. And I, I can tell you there was no single person in that room who was not crying. And most of, most of the people in the room were South Asians. Because so many of us could see ourselves in that documentary and see the experiences that people go through in within the household framework and household structures where an uncle or a cousin or uh, so so those stories are even harder to tell even harder to come out with now because we were talking about the systemic issues before i want to talk about something slightly different but definitely related um, going through the criminal justice system does not make the case to be true or not true. The case is there. The justice system has a very high standard of test, which is beyond reasonable doubt. I think any 
anyone who's not a lawyer definitely understands this concept really well because of how many times it is utilized in in our our criminal dramas and movies but for the for a very simple uh, understanding of it the beyond reasonable doubt test means that the judge or the jury making decision is going to say that if the defense is able to present even a iota or a drop or a sliver of a doubt in her mind about the about this situation which or this incident of rape or assault whether it happened or not even that sliver of a doubt is good enough for us to let go this person so that test in itself is a very very high standard test and what does a uh, survivor have in the room when and when she is going through that that trial um, in front of the judge or jury what what does she have she has uh, the crown actually presenting her case she doesn't have a lawyer uh, she is not necessarily a party to the case because she is just a witness in the case the case is between this canada the state uh, versus uh, versus this person the defendant the defendant on the other uh, other hand has a lot of rights including the full disclosure of her statement what she said sometimes they will bring an extra application for getting an extra record of hers um her her counseling record her record from past history there are a lot of good laws that have come out of supreme court of canada and our legislation bodies uh, to prevent some of the character assassination uh, of the survivors but that still happens in the court system so that is a point that people need to understand that a conviction or a non conviction doesn't really mean that whether the incident happened or not it means nothing if you ask me as a lawyer do you do you um, you know does it mean something to you it means nothing to me because to me uh, a case is someone would have you know gone uh, gone free even in spite of uh, committing the crime if the, their lawyer was able to present the doubt in the mind of the the decision maker so well, well, does does conviction on the other hand help yes it helps it helps on the on the journey of healing that kim was talking about the journey of healing is very long it's a it's a lifetime uh, of work um, and you don't necessarily heal it's not an accident that you will get over it is it is an it is a situation that will like you know you it becomes your second skin you live with it you learn to live with it um, and it gets better with time but it doesn't necessarily um, go away now talking about all of this stuff there is a third dimension to it i'm sorry i'm talking a lot because that that third dimension is kind of important for us to know and kind of talk about because south asian men or black men are the experiences of indigenous men when they are the perpetrators or when they are alleged to have the done done the crime their experience of the criminal justice system is different as compared to the caucasian people or white men again the class and the culture uh, class and their background the, whether they're rural or urban all of that plays a huge role so other than the challenge that we are talking about around survivors the criminal justice system is also at fault and needs to be uh, looked at through the lens of the race in terms of what happens to the people who are of different race against whom these cases are brought forward so that's something which needs to be looked at also through a uh, uh, a lens of uh, critique because what i can tell you is that the systemic review of our criminal justice system will tell you that black men and brown men are more likely to get 
jail time. They are more likely to be considered having committed the crime. Uh, they are more likely to be, uh, to be behind the bars. On the other hand, what Kim said is also absolutely on point, that brown and black women and indigenous women are considered to be not credible if they don't speak the language. That definitely is a huge challenge that adds to their credibility and suggestibility. I'm actually going to be arguing a case not very long from now in Supreme Court around uh, immigration status and uh, disability, because that is another another um, intersectionality that we haven't discussed too much today, but having a precarious immigration status or being non-status and disabled and, um, and all of those other barriers also adds another complexity when you are in front of a court as a witness. So the reason I'm giving you this third dimension is to just think about the criminal justice system and its sanctity next time you think about a survivor and think about whether it happened or not. Because if she's saying it happened, I can tell you it happened. Yeah. And the other thing is like a lot of times, because um, Bibi brought up um, immigration, a lot of times um, people don't come forward and testify or even they don't come forward and t tell anyone that they've been a victim of sexual violence because of the fear of deportation, right? People will come to Canada as immigrants and they may not know our laws. And so when they're a victim of sexual violence or a crime or domestic violence, oftentimes the threat of deportation is what they fear. So to even tell a family member that they've experienced a sexual act is not even in the back of their mind because they fear, you know what, like I'm in Canada and so do I really want to go back to India or wherever they're from? And so that also plays um, a factor in not um, not coming forward and not telling anyone what you've experienced. And then the other thing that I constantly hear is um, I want to drop the charges. And so when we're looking at um, domestic violence, sexual violence, again, people made the point that um, the Crown Prosecutor is not the victim's lawyer. It's a government-appointed prosecutor. And um, once the report has been given from the police to the Crown, it's out of even the police's hands, right? And so when we're telling um, women or folks, you know, drop the charges, you can just drop them. Um, they really can't, um, and so it's it's really important to understand the current like the justice system and how it works. And you know, again, I mentioned this earlier that over eighty seven percent of sexual assault cases, the perpetrator knows the victim. It's either a family member, a friend, acquaintance, a coworker, somebody who you see on the regular basis. It could be at the gurdwara, a church, um, you know. I've worked with girls who uh, come to Canada as students and they're living in a family home um, and they've been sexually assaulted by the relative that they're staying with um, or if they're working somewhere, they're sexually assaulted by their employer and they're fearful of coming forward because again, the threat of deportation, like if you tell anyone I'm going to deport you or I'm going to shame you in a way that you won't ever be able to show your face again. Okay. Um, 
so much, Deepa and Kim. Um, just a quick uh, reminder, though, before we move forward, uh, we have about two questions left, sure. and then we have about 20 minutes, so we'll just lead into the next question now. Okay. Um, so, um, Deepa, one of the things that you had mentioned um, was uh, the Me Too movement, and I think, um, you know, with uh, a lot of uh, stories of victim, victims uh, were coming out and um, sharing their stories to, to sort of claim their power back um, and retelling those stories. And we've talked about like the documentary because we are girls. Um, I think another great point that you touched on was the whole piece of uh, gaslighting for for victims when they go into the legal system and and just the whole uh, inter, uh, intersectionality piece, which I think is very very important because we see it day in and day out all the time, even today. Um, speaking of stories, though, uh, we you know being in in the in the South End. Asian community, you are exposed to stories that are also taking place in India, um, and we hear them here today. And there's a, there are, there's a lot of stories of uh, sexual assault and rape and, um, that are also coming out of India. So uh, we thought it was very important to address this topic specific, specifically, so the rape culture in India. So why do you think um, sexual violence is so prevalent in India and does that mentality carry over to Canada at all for people that are moving um, and immigrating from India to Canada? So we'll start off with Deepa. It's, it's a tricky question, right? Because I know that uh, India is right now, um, not right now, I think for the last few years has been uh, under the uh, under the scrutiny by the international media, I think since the case of Nivea, um, whose name later was disclosed by her family, Jyoti, uh, the, the, bu the bus case. Uh, I think um, the media in India, the media in, in internationally does uh, look at what is happening in, in, in India in terms of the sexual assault and sexual violence uh, very carefully. And, and those stories are, um, uh, there is a lot of interest in those stories and those stories are taken up really well. Uh, saying that, uh, I, I, ha I work with a lot of um, a lot of instruments of United Nations. Uh, the, the clinic I work at has an ECOSOC membership, so by virtue of that, I get uh, to see uh, a lot of work that is happening all across the globe, and in, in India in particular, I can tell you, um, and obviously we all take more interest in India because we have some roots there, um, there is a lot of work happening on the ground there as well. Their, their sexual assault law was reformed, uh, after Nirbhaya's case, and uh, there is a lot of dynamic and very, very uh, um, important work, uh, dynamic leaders and important work that they are doing on the ground. Uh, do we carry it here is an interesting question because migration um, is a time capsule uh, process, right? So every person who comes uh, to uh, the the comes or moves from their home country to another country, or if any one of you, who most of you I believe are Canadian born, if you moved from Canada to elsewhere, you would take the 2020 Canada with you. So people who come from India, they're bringing the current India with them. It's not that they are bringing a 1960s India with them or a 1970s India. People who came in 60s brought a 60s India with them. So I came in, uh, in 2000. Um, and I, I came in early 2000, so I left India in 2000, and that's the India that I brought with, her, with me. So it's not, so 
I think saying that, that people who are coming to India right now, they're bringing that India with them. And the discourse there is no different than discourse here. They also had their own Me Too movement. They also have a very vociferous voice uh, talking about misogyny, talking about patriarchy. Like you should, I mean, when I engage with Indian media right now and watch it, I can see amazing discourses coming out of India talking about that patriarchy needs to die Women's, needs, women's rights are important and unless and until we actually achieve them, we are never going to get a, a equitable society in India. So there is a law, you know, so, and I'm not trying to defend it, you know, bear with me when I'm saying all this because I also believe that India is a construct. We are, we are a lot of different, different cultures, a lot of different languages put together, jumbled together, stamped by our colonizers at India and we became India, right? So it's not, India is not one thing. A news coming from Bihar and a news coming from Punjab is very diverse. A news coming from South India uh, and Kashmir is very diverse as well. There's a lot of diversity within the construct of India as well. But what I'm trying to say is that international media has a tendency, especially the American international media, I would say, has a strong tendency of somehow always saying we are so neat and clean and look at those poor little um, South Asians, right? So I think that is, is the discourse that I have problem with. Uh, but people who come to Canada, they bring definitely bring their values with them, which sometimes can be problematic. But saying that, I don't think in the most rigorous society ever, uh, and in the most, um, uh, in most, uh, in a society where the values are most uh, rigorous and, and, and very uh, silencing, anyone ever has ever said that raping was fine or sexual assault is fine, right? So everyone coming knows it's wrong. Whether they condone it, whether they still will be silenced and be silenced bystanders, whether they would um, uh, exploit each other, that's a completely different problem. That's a problem of a behavior issue. That is a problem of how people utilize their power and exploit each other. That's not India problem, right? So I hope I'm, I'm making sense here because I find the international take on um, developing countries or upcoming countries sometimes highly problematic because they want to um, keep themselves like we are pristine clean and our backyard is so clean as, I, as, as the example that I gave you earlier. Um, yeah, that's my, that's my initial reaction. <laughs> I can maybe add something later. Um, I don't have anything to add to that. Okay. Um, um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I'm just trying to think. Sorry, guys. Okay. Um, oh, that's okay. I think Deepa covered that one. Yeah. Deepa, yeah. thank you so much. I think that there was definitely, like, some notions and biases that like people that are born in Canada hold about India and maybe it's because you're right like maybe it's because like when our parents came they brought this India with them and we still think that's India when we mm -hmm. don't know the reality of it right so I think that it's I think it's so important to realize that these movements are having everywhere like these movements are ha happening all across the world and different nations and everyone is moving forward yeah um I'm a huge so advocate so for that I'm a huge advocate for the LGBT community and there's a huge movement right now um, going on in India where they're actually creating a documentary sharing the lives of um, LGBTQ plus um, individuals within India and how they're making an impactful change. So 
And this is probably not for this podcast, but I can tell you that Supreme Court when they gave that judgment um, uh, and, you know, uh, basically saying that the Section 377 uh, from the Indian Criminal Code was not valid anymore. I think it was the first judgment uh, all across the globe that I have read where they apologized to the LGBTQIS2 community. In the judgment, they apologized. So, So, again, I mean... Something about us as Indians and something about us as Punjabis or Kashmiris or, you know, or Gujaratis or Marathis, something that is we are missing on is that all, all of us in this room are feminine. And we mm-hmm. all are feminine because of our aunts, our grandmothers and our dadis and our nannies and our mothers. Are, they have all been amazing role models. Even when they were survivors, honestly, mm-hmm. I, I talked about with my, my sister these days that um, even in her survivorship, my mother protected us brilliantly. Mm-hmm. I am who I am because she was a survivor who knew that while my kids are witnessing something, they are they are all they, they need this extra love and care and affection and, and this notion which Kim was talking about. Kim my my mother gave me just one rule book in life. Mm-hmm. Educate yourself and bring yourself equal to your partner. That was yeah. the only rule that she gave me, right? So but- I think I think we all need to also start celebrating that. Sometimes yeah. we forget. In my mid-40s, I'm getting the wisdom. <laughs> I think I'm getting it now, and I'm in my mid-30s. Um, my <laughs> nana, my nanaji passed away in 2007, and that's when I started doing this work. And again, my mom doesn't have any brothers. So growing up, I used to always hear, um, like, from all like sorts of people and like my mom's side of the family like you know this that and the other and my nana used to say to me but like make sure if you do anything get an education get an education and I think it's so important and I carried that with me and not just myself like my brothers did too um just to be able to stand on our own two feet and to be able to speak up for myself um, if I was the 2007 Kim right now, you probably wouldn't be hearing me on a podcast, but um, I, I'm fortunate enough to be raised by strong people who encouraged me to use my voice. That's amazing. Um, thank you both for sharing your experiences. Um, we're going to wrap up with our last question, um, and that's kind of for our listeners to what they can take away from this conversation and what can people uh, do moving forward to support survivors Um, and that can take a lot of different forms whether that is donating to shelters or just like understanding the language that they should be using and implementing to um, to be um, sensitive to survivors so I'll let you take that away. Um, So one of the things that we know um, as folks who work in the field is that um, perpetrators of sexual violence in most cases have been victims themselves. Um, And so I am a huge advocate for victims who experience sexual violence, not just women, um, men as well. And I've received a lot of backlash for that um, because, you know, a lot of times I hear Kim, it's mostly women that experience it. Well, yes, that is the case. But if we're going to stop the cycle of abuse from happening, we need to support men as well. Um, And so 
we need to create supports for men who identify themselves as um, survivors or abusers or who are seeking supports to get the supports that they need, whether that's through counseling, speaking to someone, um, education or awareness in general. Um, how can you as listeners support survivors of sexual violence or victims of sexual violence? Listen to people, um, listen to what they have to say. And I think Deepa made a really important point when she was talking about um, her experience as a lawyer and you know it's not a conviction or a non-conviction does not mean a yes or no that the incident didn't happen. Um, I always believe people when they tell me that they've experienced sexual violence. Um, I think it takes a great deal of um, power and, and you know strength to come forward and share your story um and so one of the things that i say to parents is to you know one have the conversations about consent at home talk to your kids use the language don't beat around the bush and use language prevent yourself from using certain words first educate yourself right recognize that sexual violence happens recognize that it's happening in our community recognize that you know in most cases it's somebody that you know and you know don't shame other parents for having the conversation with their parents i know um i have some friends who are parents and who don't allow sleepovers and it's for this reason it's the, you know they understand that sexual assault happens and in most cases it happens with somebody that you know so they limit sleepovers until they know the family inside out of who their kids are staying with and and that's okay and so to have the conversation, believe survivors, believe victims, and use language that um, people want you to use in terms of when you're identifying somebody who's experienced a sexual sexual abuse. That would be my take. Um, uh, for for the listeners of the podcast, I think there are uh, there are a couple of things that I'm thinking that uh, that people can take away. There were, there were some amazing points made throughout um, by Kim. I can't hear you. I just hear the, I hear a dog. Yeah, we're just going to wait for the... Oh, give me one, one second. I'll close the door. I was telling you that this can happen. One second. I think my daughter peeked in at some point and she opened the door. Um, sorry. So I'll start again so that you can make it. Um, Perfect. So in terms of in terms of the listeners of the podcast and um, and what uh, they can do to support, um, there are there are a few things that can be done to support. Um, and as Ken said, be a good listener is is an important one. If someone is uh, choosing to share a story with you, uh, be uh, be. Uh, be humble about it when someone is choosing to share a story with you because um, you you are the you are actually um, someone who they are trusting and they are coming forward to you. So make sure that you acknowledge, 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 because um, this is a narration that's coming from a survivor. Um, and keep your own judgments and their biases under check in those conversations. Um, don't let those biases come out. I sometimes give people this example. A bias is like your Google search. When you're searching on Google, Google has, an, has a repository of all different searches that you have made. And even if you don't want, it will prompt you. 
it will prompt you to say, are you looking for this? Are you looking for that? And that's what the bias is like. And someone is telling you a story, all of your own past knowledge kicks in and you have to check it. You have to say, yes, that bias is arising for me, but I don't need the bias to enter this conversation and acknowledge um, what the story is about. Be a good bystander. That means that if you see something happening around you, um, don't be silent about it. And I do understand that we navigate safety, being a bystander sometimes. Um, so yeah, be, be, do navigate your safety, but don't be a silent uh, uh, spectator or a witness. Uh, try to make sure that you can maybe somehow disrupt it. And sometimes you can just disrupt it by, uh, as, they, as they did in India, there was a campaign that they ran called Bel Bajau, which meant that if you heard someone's uh, family was having a domestic violence or a call or some, something, some escalation was happening, they would just go and ring the bell as a disruption. So be a disruptor if you are witnessing something. When someone is talking about survivorship, violence in a gathering, be a supportive voice in the room. Because even when people bring these conversations to their living room and family room, I can tell you it's hard for people to do that. I have been that person. Uh, be a supportive voice to those people who are bringing these conversations forward. And if you are a professional, you can sit on the board of various organizations which are working for this cause. You can donate to a local shelter. You can engage with the discourse. Be the part of the discourse. Because I can tell you one thing that each one of us know at least five people in our lifetime who would have experienced some kind of violence in their life, gender-based violence in their life. So saying I don't have a position or saying I've, I've never experienced it in life and I lived a very privileged life, all of those things are sometimes silencing the person who's trying to engage. So therefore, um, try to engage and try to engage positively. That is great. Thank you so much, um, Deepa and Kim. Kim did have a client meeting at 1.30, so she just, um, I think she's either already left or she's just leaving right now. So um, we'll just go into the, um, we'll just wrap up today. Thank you so much. So thank you, Deepa and Kim, for taking time out of your very busy schedules to chat with us today. These are such important conversations to have, and we really appreciate you both sharing your expertise and knowledge with us and our listeners today. Uh, yes, similarly to, um, I think I uh, thank you Deepa and Kim both to both of you. I feel like even on a personal standpoint, I've just gained so much knowledge. Um, and I feel like after this, I'm just going to need some time to just let it seep in. Uh, but you've brought in so many great topics from, you know, like the systemic issues to the uh, intersectionality. And I think those are things that we need to talk about. Um, and thank you for everyone listening. And um, our hope is that through this conversation, you were able to learn and to have some takeaways tools so that you can, uh, you know, integrate them into your personal and professional lives. Um, and change starts by having conversations. And like Deepa said, uh, continue that conversation um, in your own friend circle with in your own work groups or your family circles.